This morning's reading is from Isaiah 45, verse 9 to 25. That's on page 731 of the Church Bibles. So it's Isaiah 45, verse 9 to 25. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Does your work say, He has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, What have you begotten? Or to his mother, What have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, The Holy One of Israel and his and its Maker, concerning the things to come. Do you question me about my children, or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens, I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. But not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabians, they will come over to you and will be yours. They will trudge behind you coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly you are a God with, who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgraced. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgrace, to age is everlasting. For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, He founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret, in secret, from somewhere in a land of darkness, I have not said to Jacob's descendants, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to the gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be presented. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, In the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will be put up will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exult. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we've just sung in that previous hymn that our hearts are prone to wander, 
And we've just cried out for you to bind our hearts to your grace. And so we pray, our Father, that we would do both those things this morning as we hear your word. Please, by your Spirit, expose where our hearts wander and cause us to lean on your grace. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how you are when it comes to trusting others. Um, Take, for example, the car journey. Are you someone who sits in the passenger seats, drifts off to sleep, or are you the backseat driver? I can see a few people nudging their partners, uh, who has to tell everyone, uh, you know, the potential hazards coming up. Or I wonder how you are with social plans. Uh, You've got a party coming up, uh, someone else is organising it. Are you happy to sit back and just enjoy what they plan? Or are you there nagging the person, telling them to buy the buffet and check that they've got the balloons blowing up at the right time? See, trusting others isn't straightforward, is it? See, trusting others, as Caroline showed us earlier, requires us to depend on something else. It's a surrender of my personal interests and my control to put those in the hands of someone else. Now, I've given a couple of trivial examples this morning, but but I wonder how your trust is when it comes to God himself. How easy do we find it to trust him? Perhaps uh, when it comes to his word, and his word says something that just doesn't seem to resonate with our world or resonate with the way we might do things. How are we when we trust him with those things? Or what about his provision? How are we at trusting that he will provide our daily bread? Perhaps when the monthly bills get tight or our children, we don't know really how to bring them up. Or how easy do we find it to trust his goodness? Perhaps when our life takes a turn into a dark valley. See, when it comes to trusting God, it is not just, you know, super easy. The, one, uh, the, the moment we become a Christian, actually there is still that difficulty in trusting him. Perhaps you're here this morning and um, you're still looking into the Christian faith and perhaps this is the question you've got. Uh, It might be even for some of us that actually intellectually we're persuaded, but you've still got that question in your heart. Can this God really be trusted with my life, my plans, my goals, my everything? How are we with trust? Well, that's the question uh, of our passage this morning in Isaiah chapter 45. Um, I'm going to set us, uh, I'm going to start off with, you know, as I say in the adverts, the science bit, but we're going to do the history bit, uh, because here it's worth just having in mind the history uh, to understand what Isaiah is speaking into here. Now, you'll remember over the last few weeks we've been working through this book of Isaiah, And the big problem on the horizon is this empire of Babylon. Uh, Babylon was the new superpower on the rise. And God's people Israel, I guess, found themselves a bit like a Taiwan. This small nation with a huge superpower on its doorstep. And worse than that, God had said that this empire is going to invade Israel, take it captive... 
And so it's going to be left, as Isaiah puts it, like a, a tree stump. And God, we've seen over these past few weeks, has promised a brighter future, though. He has promised to rescue them, to bring them through the fire, and to redeem them. But in this passage, there's a huge shock. And it comes at the end of chapter 44. Um, See if you could spot it there. End of 44, God says in 28, "...who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd..." And he will accomplish all I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. See, notice who he's speaking about here. Who's going to do this work of rescue? Well, it's Cyrus. Now, maybe you hear that and you think, what's the big deal? Well, let me explain. Um, Cyrus is the new kid on the block. Um, We've been looking at Babylon and you'll see on your, di- uh, on your sheets, and there's a diagram behind me, um, you'll see that the, the last king of Babylon is Belshazzar. Remember the writing on the wall person? Well, the writing was on the wall for him, uh, you know, uh, quite literally, as, as he was the last emperor of Babylon. And on the right-hand side of this diagram, you'll see this new kid on the block, Cyrus. He's the emperor of Persia, or the king of Persia. And God says, I'm going to, look, well, look at how he describes him. This king is my shepherd. That he's going to accomplish what I want. Or in 45 verse 1, I mean, it's quite shocking language. God calls him his anointed one. That's a, a phrase used of David and the kings. And so here's the shock. God is going to deliver on his promises, but in a way that people have not been able to fathom. He's going to choose a pagan king of a huge empire to accomplish his purposes. Now, I hope I'm not being insensitive here, but I want to kind of capture the shock of this. And I was thinking it's, it's like God appointing an Idi Amin or a Vladimir Putin to accomplish his purposes. It would be unthinkable to us. See, God doesn't raise up a new David. He doesn't raise up a kind of Moses, someone who's on side, who, who, who brings his people to worship God. He chooses the worst of the worst, this pagan, idol-worshipping, egocentric emperor to rescue his people. And so you can start to see, can't you, how his people are asking the question, what is God doing? Yes, we want God to rescue But really, this way? Cyrus? Someone we would consider an enemy? And chapter 45 is all about giving an answer or a defense to why God's people should trust him. Uh, We're going to see in two parts that they should trust God because his wisdom is far beyond their wisdom. And secondly, they should trust God because his ways are far beyond their ways. And I hope that as we see what God says to them, it's going to help us when we're finding that question's coming up for us. Can we trust God as well? Uh, First of all then, trust God because his wisdom is far above your wisdom. We tend to trust people, don't we, who we know have got more expertise than us. I don't know if you've ever done this, maybe this is just me, 
But when you get on a plane, I don't know if you ever glance up to the front to who's going in the cockpit and what they look like. And you see the pilot and uh, you think to yourselves, well, they're well-dressed, they've got the shirt and everything, they've got the pilot's cap, we're safe here. (laughs) Is it just me? I don't know. (laughs) But we want to know that that person who is going to be taking us in this cigar tube at 38,000 feet really knows what they're doing with this bit of metal. And God reminds his people that he really does know what he's doing. See, they're questioning God's method, but in doing so, they're forgetting who this God is. See, look at what God says in verse 9 of chapter 45. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds of the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say, he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? Now, I had to look this up, a potsherd. I had no idea what this was. Uh, But here's a picture of a potsherd. It is one of those broken bits of pottery that archaeologists get very excited at finding in the ground. And God says that their questioning makes as much sense of one of these potsherds coming out of the ground and questioning the one who made it. Now, I'm not really made pots, uh, let's be honest, but I I do love the odd bit of woodwork. And I've produced things that I'm quite proud of. Um, I've never once had my kind of um, woodwork or my IKEA uh, furniture ever have a conversation with me about how I should have improved my methods. It'd be unthinkable. It's ridiculous. Or take verse 10, where he talks about the newborn baby arguing with their mother or father. Now, I didn't have time to check with our midwives here, but I'm pretty sure if I ask our midwives, there's never been an incident of a baby coming out of, um, well, let's not go into detail, a baby coming out and then turning around and questioning to their mother, mother, what do you think you're doing? It would be unthinkable. Now, I know these are comical images, but this is the point. See, God uses this comedy to reveal how ridiculous it is for his people to question his methods. Now, hear me right on this. This is not God saying he's beyond question. We see God being very patient with his people, explaining his methods, taking them gently. And it's not all God says. Remember, there's um, a whole Bible here of God persuading us that he really can be trusted. But he is talking into that persistent attitude that thinks God cannot possibly know something that I can't understand. See, to that, God says, remember, I'm the potter and you're the potsherd in the ground. And you see why it's just so crazy in verse 12, because at verse 12 he says, It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. Um, It's uh, estimated, I looked this up, I mean, no one has any idea, but it's estimated there are 100 billion to 200 billion uh, galaxies in our universe. Um, We haven't been able to see most of the universe, so no one really has any idea. I could say the biggest number you could imagine. 
uh, and that's pretty much the amount of galaxies. And uh, there's estimated 10,000, um, uh, sorry, 100 million stars in each galaxy. Now, to put this in some sort of proportion, um, often we say that there's an, enough stars in the universe uh, to match up a grain of sand on the Earth. Uh, but that's not strictly true. Actually, for every grain of sand on our Earth, there are 10,000 stars. So imagine you went down to um, whatever the beach is here, Portsmouth or whatever, and picked up a grain of sand. There'd be 10,000 stars for each one of those grains of sand. Or you flew to the other side of the world and went to uh, Byron Bay or something and picked up a grain of sand there. There'd be 10,000 stars for each one of those. It's an unfathomable number. And God made each one of them. He calls them out. And so it's just incredulous to think little old me in my wisdom can possibly comprehend God's methods, his wisdom, in order to question him. See, God's wisdom isn't just a little bit bigger than ours. He's not just like got the biggest score on the world IQ test. He is unquantifiable in his wisdom. Every uh, question I can think of, he sort of. And it makes as much sense for me to lecture God on what he does as the bit of pottery in the ground lecturing the sculptor or the baby having a conversation with their father about how they should have designed them slightly differently. Now, coming back to us, um, how does this help us with that trust question? Well, this isn't something I think we need to bash each other over the heads with. So it'd be very easy to go with every question, um, who are you to question God? Uh, that's not what I think this passage is saying. I think God is gentle with his people and he takes us carefully. But actually, it does speak to that persistent attitude that says, I possibly uh, can't trust God because I can't know everything he knows. And to that question, God says, remember who you are. See, humans can achieve amazing feats. We can split the atom, we can land a probe on an asteroid, we can build festival place. But for all those abilities... Compared to God's wisdom, they, they barely register. And I don't know about you, but this just helps me at those times where I think, can I really trust God? Can I really know his ways are the right ways? Actually, I am the pottery. I am the child. And he is the parent. He is the sculptor. There's a second reason, though, uh, on this trust question we see here, um, why people, uh, his people should trust him. Uh, and that is because his ways are beyond our ways. Um, it's not just the wisdom of God that people are forgetting, but actually how his ways are much better than their ways. See, the people, they hear this Cyrus figure, this pagan king is going to come and rescue them, and all they can hear is, that is a bad idea. Why does God use that method? Why not our method? But God reveals that he's got something far bigger up his sleeve through this method than anything they can imagine. Our passage, it pivots around verse 14. So first half is looking up to 1 to 13. Uh, the second half uh, switches slightly in 14. 
Uh, and there we see that God says the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabanians, they will come over to you and they will be yours and they will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains and they will bow down before you and plead with you saying, surely God is with you and there is no other, there is no other God. Um, to speak about Cush and Sabanians, um, that's like, that was the extreme south of the known world. It's like saying these people are going to come from Timbuktu to you. But, but notice what they're saying. They're coming saying, surely God is with you. There is no other. There is no other God. See, here's the thing we've seen in Isaiah. God has wanted his people to see there is no other. But here, people from the ends of the earth are going to recognize that as well that there is no other God. He is incomparable. Or see how he puts it in verse 23. He says, By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, In the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. Do you see what's going on here? God's plan is not just to take his people back to a small patch of land by the Mediterranean. God's plan here is for the ends of the earth to recognize who he is. See, God doesn't reject his people. Far from it, we see in 17 that he's going to save them, as he puts it, with an everlasting salvation. But he's going to do that in a way that not only saves Israel, but takes his salvation out to the ends of the earth. See, Cyrus is used not because God couldn't find anyone better. Cyrus isn't used because um, God ran out of ideas. See, Cyrus, this foreign pagan king, was used because God wanted his name to go out to this empire. And think of people like Nehemiah, uh, right at the heart of that empire. We heard about him last year. He was able to take, um, uh, who was able to, um, uh, we get a kind of sign of God's people being there. And, uh, and he was at the right hand of the king, able to proclaim uh, God's name to the emperor at that point. See, here's the thing. God's people, they can't see beyond the two dimensions. They got the blinkers on. But as God reveals his ways, we realize they're far bigger than we can imagine. God has not got it in his heart just to save one group of people, but to take his name out to the ends of the earth. See, God's people, they're a bit like a child who is told one night, make sure you go to bed early, we've got a very long drive tomorrow. And this child kicks out. They say, why do I have to go to bed early? I'm not going to bed early. I'm going to stay up till midnight. Or I don't want to go on a long drive tomorrow. It's so boring going on a drive. And they kick off and they start fighting with their parents. And they refuse to do it. Only to get up the next day and they, you know, bleary-eyed, get in the car. And they notice their parents type into the sat-nav, Disneyland, Paris. It's not a true story, but you get the point. (laughs) See, they can't see beyond what is being told to them, but actually God has got a far bigger plan. 
And we see that most clearly, not in Cyrus, but in the rescue that comes 700 years after this rescue. See, God works again to rescue his people in the most surprising way with that aim of taking the gospel, his fame, out to the ends of the earth. See, as Jesus was born, he didn't come in the way you and me would expect. He came not born into a royal household, but into a barn of a pagan family. Uh, Sorry, not pagan, sorry, let me correct that. A peasant family. He didn't grow up in royal courts, but he grew up on the run, rejected from his hometown. He didn't defeat his enemies in might with the edge of a sword, but in fact he laid down his life for his enemies and actually revealed that our greater enemies weren't the kind of Romans or you know whatever we face today, but actually our greatest enemies are sin and death and those he laid down his life for. See, like the people here, it can be very easy to look at the cross and think, well, that's just foolish. I wouldn't have done it that way. Why can't God just forgive sin? Or why can't God transform the world now? And kind of dismiss it. But in God's plans, we see a far greater plan to save not just a people or a person, but to save the whole earth that is in him. And since the cross, God has done that time and time again. That is God's way. Uh, How was it that the early church expanded so much? Well, remember Acts 8, it was through a great persecution. And as people went out, they spoke about what they believed. Or how was it that the gospel got right to the center of the the power uh, house uh, of the day, the, the Roman Empire? Well, God chose its greatest opponent, Paul, to take the gospel there. And ever since that point, there have been numerous occasions. Uh, Augustine, you may know, was um, the greatest mind probably the church has ever known, defended uh, the faith, and, and his stuff's read, you know, 1,500 years later. He was a promiscuous, self-indulged philosopher, and yet chosen to defend the gospel like no other. Or Martin Luther, this unknown monk in Germany with a tender conscience, changed the world in some ways by rediscovering what it meant for God to be kind to us freely. Or take the imperialistic colonial ambitions of European states, taking uh, people captive, but God using those even very evil methods to help people to hear the gospel and embrace it in far deeper ways than Europe has. See, even today, God is using surprising methods, taking what seems foolish, what seems to not make sense, and to bring about his purposes, to bring about not just one group of people being saved, but to save every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this is what people can't get in Isaiah's day. They can't see beyond the two-dimensional. But actually, as they see God's ways, they see his ways are far bigger 
than theirs. As we come into land, um, what is it we want to take away from this passage? Well, I think it's this one word, and it's this word, trust. Trust. Not blind trust, not uninformed trust. It's not sort of come in and just put your brain outside and believe this because we told you so. It's nothing like that. God does give us reason to trust, but it is trust having heard what God has said. Um, The question I was asking myself is, is there anything that I'm trusting God in that I don't know necessarily it's going to have an outcome I can see? That was a complicated question. But am I trusting God with something I don't understand? Can I trust God even when I don't know what the future holds? See, perhaps um, it's an area of obedience. Perhaps you're wrestling through. You know God's word says one thing, and yet it is such a fight. And you're tempted to think to yourself, what's the point? Does it matter anyway? But you know what God says. Well, this reminds us, doesn't it? that actually God's ways are far beyond our ways. And even if we don't see why something is good, actually here's a reminder that it is. Maybe it's in difficult circumstances. Perhaps everything in you wants to kind of take control and solve the problem, but maybe you're rubbing up against things and and realizing there's a question here. Are you going to trust God with those circumstances, even when he takes us somewhere we're not expecting? And maybe for some of us, we've never taken that step first and foremost to trust God with our whole lives. Uh, Yes, that's an ongoing thing, but, but maybe we're holding back, knowing that these things are true, but we've never taken that step to say, Jesus, I trust you with my life. See, here is a reminder why, because his ways are far beyond ours. His wisdom is far greater than ours. Or finally, as a trust, as a church, will we trust him? I don't know about you, but it's easy as a church to, to think, actually, you know, kind of mission's over here. It's the rest of the world now. But actually, here's a reminder that God works even through the most bleak of circumstances to bring about his purposes. See, as Jesus says, he will take his gospel to the ends of the earth. Will we trust him with that? How are you with trust? Well, we've seen two reasons why we should trust. Because God's wisdom is far beyond your wisdom. And because God's ways are far beyond your ways. Let's pray. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. Forgive us, Father, when we think we know better, when we don't trust. Thank you, Father, for this reminder that your wisdom is far beyond ours and your ways are far beyond our imagining. And we pray for each and every one of us, whatever we're facing, whatever we're wrestling through, that you would encourage our hearts to trust you more. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.